So we've been studying, and Jeff has been leading uh, a series in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, we had planned to take a break today. We're going to study a passage in Hebrews, and Jeff and Rebecca had also planned to be here. Uh, they woke up sick this morning, just some of the crud that's going around. So if you'd remember them in your prayers as well. Uh, Jeff, will be back, kind of put a capstone on the series next week, but today we're going to look at something else, right? So the situation, I'm grateful. This is one of my favorite passages in scripture uh, to look at today. Uh, complication is the passage is, it's dense. Uh, it's very dense, so sort of fair warning on the front end. Draws very heavily from the Old Testament, and I'll... Uh, I'll do my best, right, to give you the context to really pull out what I, I think the author's message is and the intent is for us. So the implication is we will flip back and forth between some Old Testament passages and where we are in Hebrews 12. And so when we do that, just keep your thumb on Hebrews 12 so you can, you can come back. Uh, my position is this, this text gives us really everything that we need as Christians, um, those who've we put our faith in Christ, right? We trust him. This gives us what we need to thrive, right? The clarity, the hope, the forward-looking nature of this text and what's coming. Uh, so thriving, flourishing, it doesn't eliminate pain, doesn't eliminate frustration. There's a lot of that. There's plenty of that. Nonetheless, we can thrive when we really grasp the truth of where we're headed. So I'd ask you to evaluate, right? As you Think about what you do in a given day, right? What you have going on tomorrow or the rest of this week. Once we've studied Hebrews 12, ask yourself, do I think in these terms, right? Do I think ultimately in terms of worship? That, that's where we're headed. Uh, if not, right, then there's a call for change and repentance. The Spirit blesses the believer who humbles himself, right? Or herself comes under the authority of the word, changes our thinking, and then lives, right, in stride, in accord with the current of Scripture. So that's, that's available to us. And so if you do, right, um, there is enormous benefit, and I use that word in its, in its biblical sense of blessing, uh, there is richness to be had here. So we'll look at this passage in, in three parts. Lends itself pretty naturally, I think, to that. We're going to look at the Old Covenant, New Covenant, and then what's our response if you're new to church, if you haven't been in these circles, you can sort of think of Old Testament, New Testament, and then where does that lead us, right? What's the point? What's our response to all of that? So let me give you a little bit of background on Hebrews in particular. Uh, if you've studied anything about it, you may know there, there's no consensus on who wrote it. So for instance, the Gospel of John, usually we think of John as the author. We don't know exactly who wrote this one. We do know more about who it was written to. Right? And what was the purpose? What was the author trying to do, trying to convey to this audience? And the letter ultimately, ultimately is about how, how do men and women, how do sinful human beings approach God? Right? Huge theme, lots of depth in that, lots of meat in the letter, but that's the theme. And it was drafted by, right, this letter was drafted by somebody who was just steeped in the Old Testament, given all of the quotes, all of the references, all of the allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, this guy knew the Old Testament scriptures. And therefore, you say, well, why write a letter like that to somebody else unless they're also steeped in the Old Testament, right? Unless they also know the law, the prophets, right? Um, in, the, in the whole nine yards, so to speak, of Old Testament scripture. 
So it's a sophisticated audience, right? And that accounts for some of the depth, right? Some of the nuance and some of the, the detail that we'll work through. Um, what he's worried about, frankly, are um, Jewish Christians, folks who have come to faith, right? Grown up in Judaism, come to faith, understood that Jesus is the Messiah, and are now wavering. Right? Is it really worth it? Is it really true? And the answer is yes, absolutely. But that's what he is working to address with his audience. You see it in a couple of passages in particular. We won't study today, but there's some difficult passages in this letter, particularly chapter 6, chapter 10, where the author is warning in very strong, strong terms people about the danger, right, of this idea of sort of drifting and floating and renouncing even Christ. So sophisticated Jewish audience, people who are on the fence, and this guy is saying, lean in, right? Lean in to the truth. Just to give you maybe something to hold on to as we think about it, say you were a priest, right? You were a, a Jewish priest. So your job, be at the temple, perform the service, uh, certainly gave you some standing in the community. You had, a, you had a significant social standing. You had an income, maybe the respect of family and friends. Then you become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. So, well, we don't need sacrifices anymore. So you're following Jesus as the Messiah and you're out of work. You may have lost your social standing. Right? There may be friends and family who think you are crazy and off your rocker. Right? So you're unemployed, maybe broken relationships. Uh, there are some pressures coming against you and your faith. You say, well, really? Is this, is this worth it? Right? That's the kind of picture, right? That's the type of individual to which this letter is addressed. So, with that in mind, we'll start tracing through what the, uh, the author is saying in this particular passage. And he starts the whole argument by going back to the, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. So as I said, fingers on Hebrews chapter 12, if you will, flip to Deuteronomy 5. Or scroll, whatever the case may be. All right, we're going to be in chapter 5. Verse 22, I'm going to read a short passage, and Moses is reminding the Israelites of what that day was like when the Lord descended on Mount Sinai and the law was given, as if they needed any reminding, but just track with me here. So chapter 5, verse 22, this is Moses speaking. It says, the words of the Lord spoke to all, these words of the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we've seen God speak with man and, and still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fires we have and still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we'll hear it and we'll do it. Flip back now, back to Hebrews 12, and we're going to look at 
Verse 18 is where we'll start. Uh, but this is the Lord right, establishing this covenant relationship with his people on the mountain. So let me read verse 18. Right, The author saying to these Jewish believers, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Right, he's calling back that day. God was forbidding. God was awesome and unapproachable. He was not to be touched. Something like the Holy of Holies that came later, you just couldn't go, right? You were not permitted. And he says that. You haven't come to something that can be touched. And the Lord revealed himself in fire, in smoke, in gloom, whatever that is, right? In a tempest, right? A storm, uh, wild, forbidding, unapproachable. And so to, to run up the mountain, right, uninvited, was to invite ruin, right? And you, you heard that in their words, we, we can't hear anymore, we're gonna die, right? These are not sort of cavalier words. This was a serious day, right? The reality was real. Uh, verse 19, they also heard the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoke to them. It's interesting to me, we're told that God's presence was audible to the Israelites, they heard the Lord. Uh, something in the voice that caused them, either the, the voice or the trumpet, something that caused them to, to tremble. I don't know if it's volume. You know, we don't know if it's the authority that just sort of resonant in the voice, but there was something audible that just to the core right, causes them to shrink and to say, Moses, you talk to God, we can't. And it overwhelmed them. And the impulse... Right, in this presence, in this revelation of God, this impulse was for, for them was to shrink back. Right? It was to shy away. We can't approach. Uh, verse 20, chapter 12, says, They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And there's a, a quote there. So the, the same account is also recorded in Exodus. We won't go look at it. But uh, the Lord established boundaries around the foot of the mountain and said, Don't, don't pass. Right? You cannot pass this, and to do so, again, was to invite death. And Moses himself, verse 12, 21, indeed, so terrifying was that sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Uh, let's step back a little bit and think about God's revelation of himself to the people. Right? This is the sovereign, holy God uh, introducing himself, so to speak, intently, purposefully, right? God doesn't do anything without purpose. One of the things I find striking is that all five of our human senses are engaged in understanding who God is in this particular passage, right? The people saw the Lord's presence, the fire, the smoke, the gloom, and the tempest. Smoke, if you're close enough to it, it's got a smell. And if you're closer than that, it becomes a little ashy and acidic in the back of your mouth and in your tongue, We've already heard, or read rather, uh, that the people heard something terrifying, right? So we've got sight, we've got sound, we've got uh, taste, and he told them, don't touch, right? To do so is to invite death, right? And so the Lord revealing himself in a way that's hard to miss because every sense, every human sense is engaged in perceiving the revelation of God, right? And, and the impulse is just flee for safety, 
take a few takeaways here. God reveals himself on his own terms. Didn't ask Moses, hey, what do you think would be a nice introduction? What's gonna resonate with the people? You know, should I scare them? Should I not? God is sovereign, right? Who can give counsel to the Lord? He reveals himself on his own terms and he is holy and he is unapproachable unless he finds a way to invite you to approach. And in this case, God invited a single mediator, Moses, to stand in the gap, right, between holy God, sinful people, one man called in the middle as a mediator to reveal the law of God to the people. Does that remind you of anyone, right? So there's, a, there's certainly a typology, there's a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do as a better mediator, but this is the Lord introducing himself now. Thunder, fire, flame, smoke, tempest, all five senses engaged, and the people shrank. Right? They shrank. Eventually, the rest of the law would be given. Right? There was a, a relationship of sort, law-keeping, by which the people could relate to the Lord. But even then, they could only approach once a year, and it was one man. It was the high priest, and that was a fearsome thing as well. But that's the, the nature of the relationship in the Old Covenant. It started, frankly, in a terrifying place because God is other. He's holy. Right? He's not tame. He's holy. Right? It's foreign to us. And so the author wants his audience to understand this is where it started. This is where you are historically in your Old Testament relationship, right? In your Old Covenant relationship with the Lord. And so by way of contrast, then he sets up this new covenant by God's grace, right? God has been graceful, merciful. Uh, we sang about that the Lord stepped out of heaven and mercy was in his eyes, right? God gave the old covenant that certainly has a purpose, it is good, Paul tells us, but he gave us something better in the new covenant, right? So old, now let's look at new, right? The scene shifts and it's a different mountain, right? So we started on Mount Sinai. Now we're shifting to what the author calls Mount Zion. So look, if you will, verse uh, 22. So this is Hebrews 12, 22. Right, so you haven't come to something that can be touched. He started with in, in 18, so now in 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Oh, I'm gonna stop there. We'll get to the rest of the people who are, who are present in this next scene. Uh, but instead of being consumed or potentially consumed by God on Sinai, so now there's a new mountain, Zion. All right, so to give you some background there, Zion's a real mountain. You can look it up. It's eventually where the temple was built. Uh, God descended in the temple. That's where God and man met. And so the idea of Zion came to be known as the dwelling place of God with man. And as we continue to read, the setting is mercifully different than what it was on Sinai. Uh, so that the author here is now talking about a different meeting, right? A different gathering of God's people in this next passage. So I'll finish there. You come to Mount Zion, he says, right, this heavenly Jerusalem. And let's read, right, who's present in this gathering. He says, you've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. In verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Um, so we'll work through who's there, right? What's going on? But it says, you've come to this new place. Let's start with God. God is the judge of all. The Lord Jesus is the mediator. Same God, same God, different context. Um, here, the author mentions the angels first, then the church of the firstborn was second, then something called the spirits of the righteous that are third. I don't know what it looks like when angels come to have a festival. The, the pictures that we get of angels throughout, just little glimpses throughout the Old Testament, uh, powerful angels for sure, right? They were known to carry out God's judgment and wrath. They would come to give, for instance, the uh, word to Mary, right? He, they, angels were the ones who conveyed the fact that Christ was risen, don't be afraid. But every time somebody encountered an angel, there was fear. What does it look like when angels get together for a party? Who knows? Who knows? Right? And the, uh, the author here says that the, the number is beyond count. Right? One angel laid waste to an army in the Old Testament. Here they're innumerable, and they're there to celebrate, right? to worship, as we will see. That sets the tone, right, quickly, right? How different the tone in Mount Zion compared to Mount Sinai. This church of the firstborn, that's the next group, and then we have these uh, spirits of the righteous. I think firstborn is essentially talking about the New Testament church. Right? If you accept the fact that Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead in sort of the final state, the final resurrection body, Christ is the firstborn. He is God's son, and those of us who put our faith in him, right? we have union with Christ. Uh, we are called out. Barry talked about that this morning. We are called out from whatever we were doing beforehand to gather with him. Right? We are united to him. So the, the church of the firstborn, essentially those who have believed clearly in Christ in the New Testament. There's also a reference to the... Uh, those of the, the spirits of those who are made righteous. Um, a little bit unclear, maybe. Uh, I think this is referring to Old Testament saints. So we're reading in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, the author has just given a very long list in Hebrews chapter 11 of Old Testament saints, right, to use that, that phraseology. People like Noah, God said, I'm going to send a flood. You need to make a boat. Noah believed God, and he did. People like Abraham, right, where he, God told Abraham as an old man, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea or the stars in the sky. And the scriptures say that Abraham, what? Believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? So Old Testament, New Testament, these people are rightly related to God on the basis of faith. I think that's the best understanding. We're gathered there together with these innumerable angels on the basis of faith in this festival. What will that day look like? We're all there to celebrate the Lord and his glory and worship. What a day that that will be, the first time that it actually happens. Um, 
We worship today. We have the Spirit's help. The scriptures say where two or three are gathered together, there Christ is with us also. Two, three hundred of us in a room. There are other churches around the world doing it today. But there is coming a time, right, where the old order of things will pass away. There is no more separation of one small gathering of church from another. We're all brought in, right? Millions, maybe billions. I don't know what the number is of people. And then innumerable angels, all centered, right? All there to celebrate and give worship and to give glory to the Lord. The fact that that is going to happen, right? This is not just sort of a what if and it might, but it, it will, right? It's going to happen. We, we worship now, we see in part now, but then we're gonna see him face to face. Scripture says there won't be any more tears, right? Here we get to set aside tears. We get to encourage ourselves by God's grace and worship, and then we continue with tears, right? They come, but not anymore. Those things are going to be set aside. We're going to be brought into this place and the hope that we have, right? The certainty that this day is coming. It is marked. It is on God's calendar. It's designed to be an anchor for our souls now. Now. We're not gonna be separated from anyone, right? Loved ones who have gone before, we are all going to be there to rejoice, and to worship. And so what, what accounts for the difference between the holiness of God in the first instance where everybody shrank? Remember what Adam and Eve did when they sinned and their relationship with the Lord was broken? What did they do? They hid. They shrunk. When believers, when we sin in our own, in our own lives, right? I've been through this, right? Guilt, shame, shrink. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. What accounts for this festival? What accounts for the difference This is our better mediator. Scripture says in verse 24 that we are coming to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. More Old Testament imagery imagery that the the author is using here. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3, Cain and Abel. Brothers, Cain gives a sacrifice that the Lord rejects. Abel offers a sacrifice that the Lord finds pleasing and accepts. Cain's jealous. Cain's upset. Murders his brother. Murders his brother. Blood is spilt on the ground. And when you read this account, you actually get something of the Lord's mercy because he's he's entreating Cain. We don't have time to go into all of it today. But he's asking Cain, "What, what happened? He says, your brother's blood is crying out to me, crying out for vengeance, frankly. And so the, the imagery there, the point being that even before the giving of the law, murder, sin, demands vengeance. Right? We know that feeling. When you see something awful, when you see something unjust, there is a cry for vengeance, and sin will be judged. And the scriptures say that it is the Lord's to avenge. He will bring justice. He will bring justice. The same God that institutes the old covenant calls his son. Jesus' life and ministry on the earth, he lived perfectly. You may be familiar with the gospel. You may not. But the Lord Jesus lived a perfect life, never sinned, yet offered himself willingly to pay for sin on our behalf. Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so Christ's blood was necessary. His blood, different 
than our blood, right? Not tainted. Right? The Holy Spirit came on Mary, something different, something better, something undefiled in Jesus' blood, and therefore the shedding of his blood covers multitude of sins, puts away the wrath of God. And so vengeance took place. Cain's murder was judged on the cross. Vengeance is satisfied. God is not sweeping sin under the rug. It is not a different God in the Old Testament and the New. But because Christ offered himself willingly, we can trust, we can be forgiven, we can enter into relationship with God in a way that is joyful, right? In a way that we look forward to this day where there's gonna be a party, right? A festival. It, it, it sounds trivial to use those words, but it's gonna be joyful. And so when the writer says that you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, in contrast to Moses, is the mediator of the old, there's a sprinkling of blood and it speaks a better word. The blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus speaks peace. And so where the natural impulse to see God and his holiness is to shrink, right, because of the awareness of our sin, the blood of Jesus, if we're willing to repent, if we're willing to confess, if we're willing to come under the authority and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, where we have hope, that's where we have peace, that's where we have forgiveness. And that's why, that's why this party happens. It's why it's possible because of the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word. Right? So much in that phrase, try, try and write a sentence with that much depth, right? And you see the inspiration of scripture because it's hard, right? It's hard to pack that much into one word. And so we have this hope, right, of that day coming, so now what, right? The author gives us Mount Sinai on the one hand. He gives us Mount Zion on the other. He says these things are wildly different. So what do we do, right? What's the response? That's what he presses in now in verses 25 and 26. So he says to his audience, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Uh, this is a warning. Uh, if you continue on with the history in the Old Testament, the law was given, it was broken immediately, right? Idol worship and idol manufacturing immediately. The rest of the law was given. No one followed, right? No one could. Uh, but that particular generation, right, they had the wandering. Did they make it into the promised land? No, the scriptures say that God was angry with that generation and all of them died, all of them. And Moses, who led them, who walked as the mediator, not permitted to cross into the promised land. The Lord put him on a mountain and said, you can look at it, but you're not going in. And so the author is saying, look, if those guys didn't make it, right? if they received a warning, flouted the warning, came under judgment for doing so, under an inferior covenant, right, under the old covenant, how much more dangerous is it for you, Jewish Christian, for you, Gentile Christian, to shrink back and to refuse and to walk away? Do you get the logic there? Right, this is dangerous territory. Right, for folks who have come to understand, to make some steps forward, right, to walk with the Lord, at least it appears that way, right? You and I can't judge the heart. We don't know. 
But he's making the point to them, if you were flirting with giving up, with quitting, with throwing in the towel, maybe it's not everything it's cracked up to be. Look at the record. Look what happened to those who did that under the old covenant and consider the danger, frankly, of doing that under the new covenant. Do you think that would sell in today's churches, right? No, maybe not. But it's the truth nonetheless, right? That's the reality of how precious, of how holy, of how valuable the new covenant is in Jesus. He said, if they didn't escape because they refused to listen, neither will you. Right? That's the implication. Right? And so we can think about it now. 10, 20 years ago, being a Christian was more or less a good thing. People would join churches because of the community and because of the connections. We're not under serious persecution right now, so I don't want to overdo it. But most of us aren't getting promoted or making more money because we're here today. There are some social, I don't know, economic pressures that can come to compromise, right? To deny the name of Jesus, to not rock the boat, to avoid being stood up and counted as a believer in Jesus. You probably felt that. I feel it all the time. There are moments that I regret, like Peter, for not standing and speaking more clearly for Christ. But those same sort of doubts, right? the same sort of, yeah, yeah maybe not for me, those same thoughts come. And so this is not a, well, it'll be okay, pat you on the head, send you on your way. No, this is dangerous. To hear, to consider, and to refuse, maybe not with our words, but with our lifestyle, that's dangerous ground. That is dangerous ground, right? Do not... Reject and refuse. And that's why part of the the letter earlier in this letter, it says, while you still hear his voice, like while we have the opportunity, come, don't harden your heart. Humble your heart. And ask for this mercy, right? Submit yourself to it. Say, okay, is it really worth it? If, for instance, I lose a job or I lose a friend, just like our unemployed priest may have lost a job and lost a friend, is it worth it? Yes. A thousand times, yes. And so the the author moves on to explain why. He's already given us this promise that's coming, or the picture, rather, of what's coming, and now he's going to explain what the promise is, sort of undergirding the promise, right? That day of worship where we all come together with more Old Testament um, to do so. And it's based on the certainty of God's promise. God said so. So the same God who is unapproachably holy in his own terms has given a promise that this will happen. And the promise is in a lot of places, but the author in Hebrews is gonna pull from Haggai, right? The book of Haggai. So let me put this one a little bit in context as well. Uh, If you've been here for any of Jeff's sermon, you may, or sermon series, You may remember that Cyrus told the Jews, hey, you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Fast forward a few years, some of that was taking place. Foundations were laid, and the scriptures tell us that there was actually some crying and some lament as some of the older folks began to understand that what we're building now is nothing like the first temple in all of its glory. Sort of sad, sort of dilapidated, right? Just not what it was in the good old days, so to speak. 
And so it's in that context that the Lord uses Haggai, right? The Lord sends encouragement through a prophet. So again, put your finger, keep it here, chapter 12. Go to Haggai chapter 2. This is Haggai chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Right? That's the question. Who saw the first temple right, that saw what it was like? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Right? So there's the, there's the lament, there's the doubt, there's the, the weakness, right? Just ugh, weakness of spirit. The Lord says three times, be strong. And here he explains why. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with the glory, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. There's that word again. I will give peace in this gathering, right, of where this ultimate glory is going to come, declares the Lord. So just to, to put that in perspective, people are worried about this temple they're working on. The Lord says, don't worry, I'm with you. You should continue on. Why? Because I'm with you, and I'm gonna bring this about in a way that many of them probably didn't grasp, that there will come a dwelling place of God with man where the glory of the Lord far surpasses the first temple, far surpasses the second weaker temple. And it's this picture that he's laid out for us just a few verses earlier where the saints of all time gather with the angels to worship in peace. Do you see the connection there? He said, I'm gonna do this. The glory of the Lord is coming and I'm going to give you peace. Right? Not worry, not doubt, not doubt. A few other details in this passage that are they're just, they're cool, right? One, um, let's see, where do I want to go? Maybe in verse 27. This is interesting too. So the, the author of Hebrews is now going to interpret Haggai, right? So you have the Bible interpreting the Bible. So in chapter 12, verse 27, the, the author is explaining what the language in Haggai means. He says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, right? So that he is saying, because God used those words, yet once more, I will shake, right? The first shaking was the temple, right? Exodus tells us there was an earthquake and the mountain shook. I'm gonna shake everything one more time, once more. This one is not limited to a particular mountain. This is the shaking of everything that has been made, right? Everything that's temporary to be cleaned aside, to make room for what is permanent, and because it's permanent, I'm going to do it once more. Right? What is temporary will be shaken to make room for what is permanent, which he's already explained, right? This picture of Zion, God dwelling with man in permanent peace, unshakable, untouchable, 
right? unassailable. Verses 28 and 29 then get to you know, the punchline. Right? Because all of that is true. Therefore, right? therefore, because none of this that can be shaken, right? that's all going to be replaced. What can't be shaken will remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving this kingdom that can't be shaken. So go back to my unemployed priest. Don't doubt. He warned them, it is dangerous business if you do. But here he says, be grateful. Right? Don't be scared into the kingdom. There is a holy fear and a holy reverence. But man, there is gratitude. There is worship. There is a celebration where the whole culture of that gathering is gospel peace, right? That we can be with the same Lord who came in thunder and fire and smoke and gloom. Right? Be grateful. And so from that foundation, right, understanding that it's not going to change, that it is a promise that by the Lord's word will be fulfilled, that you and I can be grateful, that you and I can be hopeful, that you and I can be certain of our calling right, and of what's coming. A few more details here. They're just, the, the, word, the, the letter is loaded with them. Uh, he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. He's already said in Hebrews 11 that without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? So this whole notion of wavering and wandering and am I in or am I out, it's a bad idea, right? The folks in chapter 11, like Abraham, who believed God, that's how you please God, right? So when we come and we sing songs, yeah, but the question is, are we singing from a place of faith? When we talk about the hope that we have, right? The certainty of the resurrection, the return of Christ. Is it an expression of your belief, right? Of the, the posture of your heart. And the cool thing is we have it within us to please God based on the posture of our heart, right? That we have that ability. He's given us that ability to please him with faith. He says to do it with reverence and awe. The word for reverence here has the idea of uh, caution and evaluation. I think that the, the best picture of this, Jesus in the night that he was in the garden before he went to the cross, he said, Lord, is there any other way? Can you take this cup from me? Right? He, he expressed his concern, fear, frankly. He knew the judgment of God that was coming. It was awful. And then he says, yet... Not what I will, but what you will. Your will be done, right? So expressed what he thought, what he felt, what he was, was dealing with cautiously. So what does God want? And in Christ's case, it was obedience to go to the cross. And so there, there was this cautious evaluation of the Lord's will that drove Christ's choice and his behavior. That's the idea here that we take note of the will of God, and we consider, and then we act on it. Right? The Old Testament says time and time again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so as you begin to understand who the Lord is on Sinai and on Mount Zion, and you consider him, that begins to guide wise choices. That make sense? So let us give worship out of gratitude. Let us do it with reverence and awe because we've considered who he is. And then he says, for our God is a consuming fire. Two more references in Deuteronomy. One's in chapter four and the other's in chapter nine. Uh, in one case, 
God is a consuming fire. It goes ahead of the Israelites and destroys the Anakim enemies, destroys them as a consuming fire. In another case, he brings the Israelites in and protects the relationship with a consuming fire so nobody on the outside can come in. And so when Scripture says that our God is a consuming fire, there is judgment, there is sovereign bringing in, sovereign election, sovereign protection. He is deadly serious about his covenant relationship with his people. And when I say deadly, in the sense that you heard it, right? In Sinai, you understand the death of Christ that's necessary for the new covenant, the warning about walking away. Our God is a consuming fire, the writer says. And so as you flirt with lackadaisical belief, as you flirt with selfishness, if you flirt with denying the Lord, right, in our lifestyle, in our choices, come back to this place to understand the future that awaits us, right, this day of worship for all of the redeemed, as we understand who the Lord is, right, and we come with gratitude, we come with reverence, we come with acceptable worship, not flippant, not callous, not rote, acceptable worship. It matters. Right? The way that you and I live our lives, whether we submit to the truth of God's word, matters. So the same warnings, the same encouragement that were part of this letter for those believers, they apply to us as well. Um, I said at the beginning that I think this passage gives us clarity for thriving. Uh, there's a catechism, right? The Shorter Westminster Catechism that says the chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. Right? That's what this passage, I think, is helping us understand something of who God is, to know him and enjoy his presence, right? So that's the peace that Christ affords. We can enjoy him in this festal gathering. That's what we're made for. That's what we're made for. That's where it's headed, Right, so everything that we do now, family, work, relationship, from the seemingly mundane to something bigger, all under the umbrella of this final worship to which we're heading. That's what we're made for. So that's a lot. Right? And this is like nine verses of 13 chapters. Right? It's a wonderful book. A um, couple last words, and we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, most of this message is direct, all of this, as it was written, this message is directed to believers. Uh, if that's you, hopefully this has encouraged you. If you are not a believer in Christ, right, you may be familiar with the trappings of church, but if you haven't personally decided, chosen, that this is for you, uh, grab an elder, grab a church member, ask them, hey, I'd like to understand. This is, this is not sort of just a flash in the pan, snap decision, but you need to respond. If the spirit, if you're feeling, right, some uneasiness and you want to understand the gospel, grab one of us. The preciousness of what Christ has done to atone for your sin and for mine and to bring us into this hope doesn't get much more important than that. So it'd be our pleasure to explain what the gospel is if you have questions. So let me pray. Father, you are the, the Holy One, of Israel, uh, the Psalms say that you were from everlasting to everlasting, that you were the Alpha and the Omega. Lord Jesus, you were like a, a lamb standing as those slain. 
Lord, we would all be ruined in an instant if it weren't for your grace to make atonement at the cost of the son's life and then his resurrection. And so we're grateful. We are grateful. So for those of us that need help, Lord, may our spirits just yield to the work of your word and the work of your spirit today. Bring us back to a place of acceptable worship, Lord, of reverence for your name. In whatever context, whatever application that looks like, may we be obedient. May we give you honor. Lord, may we get just more practice and more focus on how to worship well. Lord, that's what we're made for, and that's where it's all heading. And so we give you our thanks. We give you our praise. It's in Jesus' name.